Hello, 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 and welcome to Kicking and Streaming, the show where streaming originals and traditional cinema enter the ring for the ultimate showdown. I'm Bo. And I'm Chris. Are streaming originals the TV movies of the 21st century? Is cinema really different from movies? Is Netflix the future? These questions and more on... Kicking and Streaming. Kick, uh, kicking and... You, you, need, you, need to say, you need to say it with me. No, I thought you... Okay, okay, hold on. Kicking and... Hold on, no, no. Okay. At the same time. Okay. Okay. One, two. Kicking and Streaming. Okay. No. Here. No, okay. Here, I'll, I'll count you in. So just to start here, uh, for our very first episode, uh, here's a brief introduction of what we're doing and how we're doing it. Uh, Bo and I, uh, we talk a lot about film, and I have a tendency to watch a lot of direct-to-streaming originals, Netflix originals, Hulu originals, Amazon originals, etc. I'm not necessarily a huge advocate for the world of, of, of streaming. I love a good time at the movie theaters, but there have been plenty of times where I could have gone to the movies and I stayed in and streamed something instead. So what we're going to be doing is we're going to be representing two halves of the, the argument between going to the movies and staying home. And, uh, of course, the counterpart to this, Bo will be suggesting Criterion films, which, uh, as we know, uh, at least to my knowledge, most films aren't released in cinema as Criterion. It's usually after the fact, but they still represent, as a whole, on an elemental level, they represent cinema at its purest, I would say. So we'll be, we'll be kind of doing a bit of a compare and contrast. Uh, we'll usually pick films along similar themes. One of us will pick a film for the other to watch, and then the other will pick a film in response. And after we watch both films, we're going to just share our thoughts on them with each other and see if we can't learn a little bit about some of the differences between streaming and cinema, even if we're doing so jokingly at times. Okay, so getting started, Bo, I assigned you Tao to watch for our first episode of our podcast. As we know, it's my job to pick streaming movies, your job to pick uh, Criterion films. I'm curious to hear what you thought of Tao. Tao. Okay. Yeah. So I'll be honest, this was my first time even turning on Netflix in quite a while. That's how much of a Criterion snob I've become. So yeah, I looked up Tao, saw it, I I had no idea what this film was. It's a a 2018 film by uh, Federico D'Alessandro, and this appears to be his first feature film. I don't know whether you, you saw that. His background is quite interesting. He's a storyboard artist. He has been a storyboard artist on at least one art film, The Assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford. Well, that's something. Yeah, but mostly his career seems to be as an animatic supervisor for Marvel films, almost all the Marvel films. So we can get into some of the uh, design aspects of the film as we go along. But anyway, this movie, Tao. So Tao is a sort of dystopian sci-fi horror something an amalgam of these things you get at the beginning we open up with like a glimpse of a sort of you know typical blade runner inspired punk universe uh there's the all the blues and orange neon you know colors and grungy there's she's there's a character who turns out to be our protagonist julia and she's uh entering this 
seedy nightclub and we got the, you know, electronic dance music going. And we get just a couple minutes of that to set things up. And pretty quickly, she's been mugged and kidnapped and wakes up imprisoned. And in her her prison, this area in which she turns out to be a house uh, is where we're going to spend the rest of the film. And we follow Julia as she navigates this this you know escaping first she she's imprisoned in in a in a cell and she's in these sort of odd uh, gray scrubs that she's put in with like a face mask and she doesn't appear to have any memory of what's happened to her uh, and then she she finds that she has two cellmates who are similarly bound and gagged and eventually she's able to kind of escape from that area, uh, in that escape, the cellmates end up being killed, and she kind of makes her way into the, the greater house. This is like a, this cell was like a bunker in this house. And she ends up being able to spend the rest of the film in this house, uh, still as a prisoner. But that's kind of the, the premise. So this is a very sincere film. Uh, it doesn't really seem to be making any commentary. It's not really aware of its um, place in genre, and and that gets a bit muddled because it is sort of a genre film. But whether it's horror or sci-fi, I guess it's sitting in that that is a subgenre in itself. And it doesn't really make any meta commentary, which is I think somewhat unusual for a film today, a Netflix film in particular. I mean, you have things like sort of just staples of you have a side, a brief side character of this black guy who's prisoner, and you literally have the black guy dying first trope without <laughs> any bat of an eye. You know, it doesn't seem to be in any tongue in cheek way. Total lack of self awareness. The, the, the whole film is really, I, I, I'm guessing that you felt this as well. The whole film is just very sincere. It's an ode to cinema. There are clear marks of design. You know, I mean, there's an artificial intelligence. That's what I, I failed to mention. The biggest point of the plot. There's an artificial intelligence <laughs> called called Tao, <laughs> and Tao. That's the name of the film. Uh, the artificial intelligence is voiced by Gary Oldman, who is the the one name, the one real name in this whole thing. Gary Oldman, yeah, voices this this artificial intelligence, which manifests itself as a as sort of a big red eye, which is very clearly inspired by Hal in in 2001 and there are several other design points that seem kind of lifted from other films and anyway the point being that it takes a very sincere approach it, there's no real attempts at humor it very you know a couple very light attempts at humor maybe but mostly it just plays it very straight and very sincere and uh, clearly is in love with the with cinema and its genres I think, and we'll just get right into it, I think its big failure is that it fails to elaborate on any single idea. There really is no innovation here. There's nothing new to say about anything that's happening. This is everything here you've seen before. It's funny. Yeah, as you say that, I'm thinking, you know, the film is kind of about this this artificial intelligence, this robot that has never seen the outside world and is learning about trees for the first time. And ironically, I, th I think they were going for a commentary on what it means to be a person, you know, on what, what counts as personhood. But at the same time, it seems like the screenwriter had the same understanding of humanity that Tao does at the beginning of the movie. 
it's like a child first discovered the concept of, you know, the philosophical debate of what counts as a person. And so he's kind of, well, a person has feelings, I guess. You know, it's just this very rudimentary, very childish take on what's often been addressed with a lot of depth in science fiction in some of the better stories. Yeah, I mean, it's bold to be lifting from 2001. I mean, many films do. And I don't Mm -hmm. think you have to go in making a sci-fi film and being inspired by something like Blade Runner or 2001 and thinking, oh, I'm going to make something that's just as good as those. But I feel like you ought to be going in saying, okay, I'm going to make something that has a little something different to say than either of those films did. Otherwise, you're surely just setting yourself up to be disappointing. Exactly. Um, and, and yeah, this film does, you know, it, it, it's the question of AI and what it means to be human. And as far as the horror aspects come in, the question of artificial intelligence is a, a collective form of horror, right? Because AI is sort of the sum of all human minds. Like we've come together, we've put together all our knowledge and together we're making this thing that is perhaps superior to us. And then it's what's going to happen to that thing, this collective horror that we've created, as opposed to more individualistic horror that comes from, you know, temptations or the demons within or without or monsters or that sort of thing. Well, I, I want to talk a little bit about the, the characters to kind of illustrate this. So the this whole fiendish plot is being designed by some sort of, you know, Zuckerbergian, Steve Jobsian character called Alex. And he's uh, some sort of multimillionaire tech genius in the, you know, not so distant future. And he's created uh, many things. We see, I, I think there's a moment where you see his collection of trophies and uh, how many magazine covers he's been on. He's sort of this you know, celebrated genius of the time. And he's also under pressure to create this AI to a certain level. We get, there's these sort of board meetings that happen, these virtual board meetings where he, you know, is essentially Skyping with these people that are telling him he's got this deadline uh, that he has to meet. And um, he's there working on Tao. And Tao in the beginning is mostly serves just as an exposition robot that he can explain kind of plot points to and cue us in on what's happening as he deals with Julia. And this Alex character is played by Ed Screen, I think. Ed Screen, Screen. It's probably how you say it. I call him I call him Screen. Okay. Sounds cooler. Yeah. The Screen. <laughs> yeah, The Screen. I he has uh, other movies that he's been in. And I felt sure that I recognized him, but I don't think I do from any of his movies. I think I recognize him out of his sheer conformity to like every protagonist that's ever been. I mean, he's just so there's, you know, because the actor, I feel like in a way his performance is actually um, good. I don't, I don't have any complaints about his acting. It's just that the part is such a part of conforming into this very cookie cutter sort of vanilla. Actually, I don't really like the term vanilla. I think Vanilla tastes wonderful and it's exotic and has the same origins of chocolate. <laughs> and uh, I don't know why we use it to mean sort of bland or plain. Think of it like bland, flavorless oatmeal. Yeah, and and that's really what we're we're getting here from his performance. Uh, perhaps not through a fault of his own. Alex, he's clearly a fastidious guy, uh, playing into the trope again of a man who it just sort of this unfeeling genius. You know, I think. Uh, the film obviously wants to make the point that Alex is less human than Tao, 
the the AI that we that we come to know through Julia's conversations with with Tao when Alex is away. Alex, for a genius of the tech part of the, you know, he's this weird, I mean, it's very typical to have a villain who's sort of really into, who's, who's vicious and brutal and unfeeling, uh, yet has this uh, love for classical music. And he's very, you know, fastidious and refined. And clearly his tastes are exquisite and so on. Uh, but there's this weird, you know, I guess in a way he's much more uh Steve Jobs maybe than Zuckerberg at least in their popular iterations because his designs he's clearly much much more interested in design it from its artistic standpoints than he is in anything uh practical i mean it's very much style over substance the ai rather than you know operating the house and using all the mechanisms of the house to like enclose people or do things in a way that you would imagine is effective the ai mostly just exists as a go-between for this big bulbous robot thing (laughs) that just pops up out of the it's like a little triangle and then it transforms like a transformer into this very stereotypical stomping robotic thing with Spikes. Yes, yeah, stomping on his nice marble floors. Exactly. And this robot will come out and it will kill things. And it's this big sort of blocky moving. It's meant to be sort of intimidating and, and militaristic. And it, somehow it's able to accomplish very finicky little things that I don't <laughs> think they that robot could accomplish. You all, It always cuts away before, you know, you see the robot and Alex will tell the robot through Tao, you know, uh, restrain Julia. And the robot will like come after Julia um, you know, with all the stereotypical sound effects, that was one thing. A lot of a lot of boosh and, and you know every yeah, and moving along, and then it, it'll cut later to Julia being basically usually zip tied to different things, which I, yeah. I thought was also an interesting choice. Like rather than locked in any rooms with you, you'd assume this ultimate smart home would have, you know, doors that could just be locked on command and everything. But she ends up just getting zip-tied to things. And also, that's something that I just don't believe that robot is capable of. And we never actually see it do any of the zip-tying. So, I mean, I guess it could be implied that the robot just, you know, restrains her and then... Alex comes over and does the zip tying himself. Actually, if you yeah, if you remember, there's a moment about uh, three quarters of the way through the movie. He's asking why she doesn't read books, and she says, "Well, because reading doesn't put food on the table." And he says, "No, it doesn't. I put food on the table with my nano drones." <laughs> and <laughs> I'm just I, I can't help but picture Gary Oldman trying to say that with a straight face. But, yeah. So there you go. Maybe the nano drones fly out and, and tire, kind of like the birds in Cinderella making a dress, you know? It's true. And the nano drones are quite like um, a fairy princess's bird friends. But to that point, uh, they're about as effective. Like, I think, because what I, one thing I was going to bring up is these nano drones, which are basically, they sort of look like a the robot version of a snitch from from Harry Potter. Oh, yeah. And then they sort of buzz out in uh, together and move like a school of fish to accomplish uh, little tasks, all these little robots. And doing things like cleaning up blood in this sort of very hypnotic, synchronized, almost like a dance, just sort of rolling around in the blood, uh, vacuuming it up in little ways. And, you know, and I just couldn't help thinking that 
you know, a Roomba would be much more effective than those things were at cleaning up the blood. Yeah, you know, they just sort of up... dance around. Just I don't know what it. I mean, they've got to be capable of what, like holding a couple fluid ounces total, maybe, <laughs> assuming that they're hollow. I mean, <laughs> so that that's very perplexing. There's a lot of sort of MacGyver style fantasy going on here in that we're just sort of supposed to accept that this is the way things work, even though there's lots of, you know, they throw around some computing, computer buzzwords and fancy talk, essentially, about the the AI and about his, but there's a lot of questions of odd things that, that Tao, the artificial intelligence, seems to understand, but the other things that he doesn't understand, it's very confusing. Uh, keeping up with exactly keeping up with what he does and doesn't know is very perplexing, and I think is one of the most distracting. I you know you can sort of suspend your disbelief about okay the way that this works or what it could be capable of understanding, but uh, engaging with the rules of this universe in terms of what Tao can and cannot do or can and cannot understand is one of the more perplexing points of the film. Yeah, see this is. This actually leads into a clip that I wanted to share because pretty much all my notes are just talking about what a horrible, horrible smart home this is, even by today's standards. I'm thinking there's this moment where Julia is speaking with Alex uh, and it's the it's the classic. He's it's like there's a fireplace. He's sitting in his little chair. She comes out in like a kind of a sultry red top with this like split down the middle to show her cleavage. I don't know why he has this dress lying around but she, she comes in and she just sort of she just starts drilling him on how this ai works she says so so how, how how is it so smart how does it do this thing and he basically again the grade school idiot version of your classic villains monologue uh he, he basically tells her well he, he works the way he works because i have him closed off from the outside world i have to control the flow of information that he gets it's the only way to make sure that he functions as intended and i don't want you talking to him about any stuff from the outside world yeah. this girl who you have captured and tortured and kept prisoner and are now allowing to walk freely around your home you're telling her look please don't <laughs> please don't talk to him about the outside because it's that's that that messes him up please don't do that yeah basically giving her the clue that she needs exactly don't push this big red button that says destroy my house which there's a whole other thing about that but uh <laughs> so the the, the 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 very next scene he leaves for work and I should add up to this point this this cold, ruthless artificial intelligence whose job it is, like, he has one job, make sure she does these tests because the tests will make it smarter or something. Uh, it's one job is to make sure she does it. But there's holy cow, there's so many moments where he says, you will perform the tests. And she goes, no. You will perform the tests or I will inflict pain. No, Tao, I'm not going to do it. Please do it. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, what kind of, what kind of like even even my dingy old Windows laptop can execute commands better than this. So I was gonna say that very next scene. If you're okay with me sharing a little clip here, yeah. Uh, I just wanted to talk briefly about this scene and what it means in the scope of the entire film. I'm gonna fire it up here. Begin your tasks now. I'm a person, right? And a person Subject three, return to outside. your tasks immediately. I don't belong in here. Or you will be punished. I came from out there. That's where Alex goes every day. 
because he's a person. You have 10 seconds to obey my command. And more people too. 10, nine, eight, So if you can seven, unlock the door. Six, five, I'll show you four. what's outside. Outside? What is outside? Outside's the world. Explain. I need information. So the reason I love this scene so much, it, it, it just shows how incredibly ineffective this is. Like, imagine a security system in your home that requires a code to be punched in to turn off the alarms to your house. A burglar comes in and he's trying to break into your house. And then he sort of stops and says, listen, alarm system, if you let me into the house, I'll tell you about the outside. And it immediately ceases all functions and says, outside? What is outside? Yeah. Explain. <laughs> it just reverts to this child, this toddler. Why would you build this functionality into your robot? And it's... The whole time I was watching this film, I was thinking Julia is the equivalent of... Uh, if any listeners have heard of the game Dungeons & Dragons, <laughs> she reminds me of a player who... If a person was playing Dungeons & Dragons and absolutely horrible at the role-playing aspect, but gets incredibly lucky rolls to test how effective their attempts are, <laughs> you know, it's like, it's like in Dungeons & Dragons, you'd walk up to a barkeep and say, you know, like, all right, well, you want to ask him for, his, for, for a room, and the person comes up and says, give me room now, and it makes no sense in the context, but then they roll a natural 20, and it's this critical success, and it's like, all right, well, I guess that works anyway. That's the entire film is just her bumbling through like the most idiotic form of manipulation and he's just eating it up yeah and this to me i said that the film didn't really contain any surprises but actually this was one for me because this film you know i chose an escape film to go along with the theme of escape here but i was tempted to pick some one iteration or other of beauty and the beast or la belle la bête because you know, the scene that you, you picked really illustrates how human Tao is. Uh, you know, his AI is apparently to the point where, you know, he's making all sorts of choices. And he's much more like um, a, a child, you know, some sort of Frankenstein monster awakening to its realities than AI that we're used to, right? And then you have these scenes which in the library with, you know, the books that I thought, again, was very reminiscent of Beauty and the Beast and this romance blossoming between them sort of in a way, you know, a friendship at least that is sort of deep and, you know, this awakening within Tao uh, that allows him to begin to feel sympathy and later even empathy for Julia, which uh, leads to him being complicit in her escape during the uh, wild final sequences of the film. <laughs> but you're pointing out again the the sort of the woodenness that we really get from the character of Julia, um, who is played by uh, Meka, Micah Monroe, again, an actress I'm not familiar with. And I'm not sure. she's She comes across a bit more, and I'm sorry to say, a bit more wooden than the screen or the scrine or whatever we were calling him. Um, the scrine. Yeah, the scrine. This film, it's cast in 2016, and it takes till late 2018, I think, before Netflix has picked up this film. So this film is kind of in predict production or limbo or something for a while. And at some point, I think it kind of gets a rebranding because... I'm really perplexed at how this film even earns its 
its R rating. It, it's, it shows up as an R film. And um, the vibe you get from the very first few minutes, and certainly the way that Netflix wants you to think about this film, is that this is going to be a sexy sci-fi film. Um, I think the image that they've chosen is an image of her um, in the in the shower, and you can see she's at one point she's had a chip, which we haven't mentioned yet. She's had a chip implanted in her brain because the whole reason that she's captured is it, she's being used as uh, to mine data from her tests because <laughs> yeah, that was that whole convoluted thing. She's a, sort of a pariah in, in society as this sort of homeless pickpocket girl. And so that's why she's been able to be captured. And then it turns out she's got a lot of street smarts. And so she's valuable. Um, plus, she killed the other test subjects. Well, got the other test subjects killed. <laughs> and so she is uh, being mined for information to help uh, Tao become more sophisticated. And so she has this chip implanted. Anyway, point being, she's you see, you know, this shot of her uh, in the shower and, and she's feeling the back of her neck where there's a sort of glowing orb where the chip has been implanted. And the film, you know, is is rated R, and it starts out with her slinking around in this um, kind of sexy dress in this nightclub, and she's making out with a guy. She's picking his pocket. So you get the idea that maybe this is going to be sort of an edgy film. Uh, I wondered, you know, as, as like, oh, what, what's Chris got me into? And then, <laughs> you, you know, there, at one point, the Alex character goes off to buy her clothes because that's one of her demands if she's going to work with him in the way that, uh, you know, if she's going to come along nicely, basically. And so he goes and he you know, maxes out his credit cards at some stores and has an attendant pick out all these clothes for her, and including um, lingerie and intimate wear and all this. And it seems like it's building up, you know, I mean, you've got a woman, you know, both both actors are attractive people and you've got this woman and she's clearly used to presenting herself in a sexy way and she's a prisoner and there's this young uh, presumably single guy there and you feel like surely the sexual element is is going to to come about and it it sort of does but this is something i had a, a clip for i want to talk about the romance or this erotic uh sensuality that tries to th this question because I think the film does raise the question. Uh, you know, there's a few moments when she receives, you know, she she receives lingerie from him, and he seems kind of embarrassed about it. And you know, there's a moment in the film where you see him. She's looking through her clothes, or maybe she's about to change, or she's come out of the shower, or something kind of intimate. And you see that he's looking over at her. But I, I just want to talk about the Russian idea of montage, Eisenstinian stuff that you learn in film school, and uh, it's much more fun to hear Alfred Hitchcock explain it, so we'll let him do that. Now, the third way is what one might call pure cinematics, the assembly of, of film, and how it can be changed to create a different idea. Now, we have a close-up. Let me show what he sees. Let's assume he saw a woman holding a baby in her arms. Now we cut back to his reaction to what he sees, and he smiles. Now what is he as a character? He's a kindly man. He's sympathetic. 
Now, let's take the middle piece of film away, the woman with the child, but leave his two pieces of film as they were. Now we'll put in uh, a piece of film of a girl in a bikini. He looks, girl in a bikini, he smiles. What is he now? A dirty old man. He's no longer the benign gentleman who loves babies. That's the difference. That's what film can do for you. As Hitchcock's saying there, you know, it's how you present the cuts, right, that gives us the the mood that we want. But still, you know, I feel like this, this movie is relying purely on that to create any sense of eroticism at all. I mean, the character I got the impression was sort of, I wondered if he might be um, homosexual or asexual because of the extreme level of disinterest I felt that he had toward this um, this character. And it's fine if the film doesn't want to go there, but the film feels like it does want to go there. It's just perplexingly not ever seeming to really get there. There's all these hints of something erotic, that there's going to be this element of sexiness to the film. And I find the film uh, profoundly even surprisingly, given what it tries to set up, unsexy. Let's play the other clip that I had real quick. So this is a scene where Julia is coming out and she's got kind of this low-cut thing on and she, you know, and we've got this blue mood that uh, Tao has set in the house, uh, blue lights, and and she's coming up to him. Clearly, finally, um, very surprised this hadn't happened earlier, uh, she's coming to try and use... The seduction that we've seen from the very beginning of the film is the way that she gets what she wants. I'm sorry if I upset you. Let me make it up to you. Stop. I see the way you look at me. Look at me. Alex, your heart rate has become elevated. Now entering Zen mode. Yeah, okay, so this, I just love that she says there, you know, that she comes in and she's looking at him and she says, you know, and she's trying to be all sexy now. And it's, uh, I've seen the way you look at me, which um, I felt like, well, you should have shown us the way that he was looking at her because <laughs> I have had no traces of this at all. I've, I've had no, at no point have I been given any indication that he thinks of her as anything other than a slightly annoying hindrance to his plans you know it... yeah taking hitchcock's comparison you could you could take out the way he looks at her you could take out any shot of her and insert a shot of a piece of bread on a plate on the table yes <laughs> and it would not change the context at all <laughs> yeah yeah and then you know just the the way that scene you know from i've seen the way you look at me look at me look at me <laughs> Really got to force this, that one. <laughs> the seduction scene and the way that she's just moving is so unnatural. She's, you know, she's reaching for this knife that she's hidden that that Tao isn't meant to see. Um, which that's a thing that, that she knife? can do to Tao. She can hide 
She can hide things. Yeah, I do want to talk about the knife. And quickly, hold your point on the knife because I want yeah, to say yeah. quickly that maybe the one scene that I did appreciate in this film fully, um, I wouldn't say that this is by any stretch the worst film that I've seen, <laughs> but you know, it, but it's as we've been harping on, um, you know, lacking in innovation or imagination. But um, one scene I did like was the. Everything going on on the table. There was something there. I felt on the on the table when dealing with that knife. When she's she only gets a fork, which I feel is you know stab someone with a fork. You're gonna do. <laughs> you can do it with a fork. You know. Uh, <laughs> she gets a fork to eat her steak with, and she doesn't get a knife. And there's this sort of and and I appreciated the way that it was sort of subtly built. Uh, more subtle than anything else in the film, I think. The fact that she wanted the knife and that he was reluctant to give her the knife. And the whole exchange over the knife in the beginning was, I thought, maybe the most effective scene in the film. Uh, but then eventually, yeah, she does get the knife and she's able to kind of hide it away where Tao, the you know supreme AI of the house, is not able to see that that it's been stolen yeah i uh and it is funny because yeah like you say the the sequence it's several scenes worth of her setting up the knife she takes his glasses he gets mad at tau it forms as a distraction she t- stashes the knife etc etc but then at the moment she's seducing him and this is one of the moments where i wish that we could give our listeners a visual while she's seducing him her face remains level with his face she is the, she is anchored to him at the neck, you know, they are, they are moving in tandem. And then we cut, we cut to the knife on the floor and it's not, it's not hidden. It's just next to the table leg. It's just sitting there on the floor. And with, I can't stress enough how absurd this looks because as it starts, her hand is probably a solid two feet away from that knife. And as she's trying to like kind of like lean in, kind of breathe on his face a little bit, kind of get him going, we cut back and we see her hand just kind of slowly stretching for this knife. And then we cut back and we see her again. She has not moved. And so you get this thing, this Michael Jordan and Space Jam effect of her hand just kind of slowly stretching to this inhuman length yeah. to reach down. And it's happening if he had any periphery, if he... The, the guy must have the most narrow field of vision ever because it's, I mean, at least the way the scene is set, it's not super clear, but I feel like I would personally notice if this random, awkward, out-of-nowhere seduction was happening and at the corner of my eye I can see her arm stretching to two feet its normal length to grab this knife off the floor that's in plain sight. Yeah. They really cut corners there. And I feel the way the way around this, right, I mean, aside from some editing and blocking things that, that seem pretty obvious, but the way around this is to give us the feeling, you know, because the, the art of the erotic film, right? The, the way that someone else would have done this would be to make us convinced that that he, uh, that Alex is interested in her sexually and is therefore caught up in his desire. Um, and also to make us as the audience desire her. And then if we fall into that um, erotic thing, then we can sort of um, believe and get set up in the, into the traps that she sets through her. You know, this is something that we get through um, uh, Ex Machina, you know, where we have an AI and and 
questions of sexuality and eroticism and how that builds up and how it's um, seducing characters and also the audience. And it feels like that that needs to happen here, but it just doesn't happen at all. So so clearly, um, I was, you know, uh, neither of us were, were fans of this film. Um, you having me <laughs> watch it um, was a, a prank of yours, some sort of revenge plot. No, Bo, I wish to share with you. I want to share... <laughs> I want to share my pain. Um, I mean, this film really does bring up the question, you know, uh, and of course, you know, we're we're gonna we're really gonna get into this, and we're gonna review all sorts of uh, streaming films of various levels of quality and acclaim, but um, this one really does bring up the idea of a TV movie. You know, it, it feels it's very safe. There's no real innovation going on. I could see someone liking this this film if they're really not too bothered someone who maybe doesn't uh, watch you know hasn't seen something like 2001 or Blade Runner and they just kind of got something on you know it's it's it has its moments that are more offensive but for the most part it's just very you know plain oatmeal sort of run of the mill mm-hmm. kind of a film uh, but I do have one very important question for you Chris oh please answer with care would you ever interlock fingers with a severed hand? <laughs> <laughs> that was a window into her psyche that I was not expecting. Oh, <laughs> um, so bizarre. I mean, I guess it was maybe she's being practical. Maybe it's, you know, like holding the handle on a suitcase. It's just kind of like, well, I mean, where else is he going to hold it by the stump or like? Yeah, I mean, I guess when you think about it, a hand does, you know, it they are designed to interlock in that way. But it feels, you know, it's 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 certainly their most intimate moment together. <laughs> I feel closer to you than ever before. And for for any listeners who have not had the joy of watching Tao yet, uh, for a bit of context, the severed hand is Alex's. She she cuts it off him at one point to to get into a <laughs> to to get into a security door that requires his handprint. So of course, you know, she chops off his hand. And once again, the thought put into it is so ludicrously simplistic, but at the same time, every time she tries to put the hand on, the film takes the time to tell us that, oh, he's the hand is going cold. It's been cut off from the person. And so yeah. she's constantly she's holding this severed, disembodied hand up to her face and blowing on it and rubbing the fingers and getting very close. Yeah, like you said, it's the most intimate they've been in the whole film. Yes. She's just rubbing this hand all over her face to try and heat it up to generate a signature for this door. Just, once again, it's a displaced level of care put into details. Yeah. And that was the most that was the most shocking part of the film for me not that she cuts off his hand which um could be expected i mean this is a, again uh, it's been branded for an r rating i think as a publicity thing more than anything this is a very tame film it isn't a, there's not um really there's not any swearing even that i recall maybe a, a couple words or something there's uh, a bit i think maybe enough to barely push it over the threshold maybe that's what it is cuz uh, yeah the film is is quite quite tame um, but yeah, you do see uh, at one point she uh, she gets Alex and yeah is able to chop off his hand, um, which is revealed right. You you see her the with the little buzzer and then it's revealed through showing that she has the hand now. You don't actually see it get cut off. And 
That is the that was the shocking part. Not that she cut his hand, but that she's holding it with interlock. Like she's it's as though he is standing there next to her and they're and they're holding hands with interlock fingers, but he, you just can't see him because she's just holding the hand that way, just carrying it around like that. Uh, no blood. Second nature. Just carrying around this this severed hand. You know whatever she she's apparently was able to sever it and then uh, what do you cauterize it or whatever so it's not yeah. you know. No, no messy. <laughs> it's clean cut. Oh man. Well, Bo. Um. Well, what what rating would you give Tao? I being yeah. A, so uh, I was gonna say I think I think we need to rate this on a scale of one to five. Uh, little little nanobots. Does that work for you? <laughs> Works great. These wonderful little nanobots, which have that great, you know, it, which end up being. Uh, end up being the sort of savior of Tao and everybody in the end. The, the nanobots really save the day. They're really the stars of the film, I think. Yeah, they carried the whole team, really. They get to they get to dance around, and uh, you know they get to embody uh, Gary Oldman and be friends with you know they get to do all sorts of things. <laughs> I would say this film for me uh, again. I don't find the film offensive or horribly unwatchable. Um, as much as I just find it very, very, very bland, um, very cold and uh, disconnected from anything that would give it any thrills or heat, I, I, I watch the film with sort of a mild curiosity about what's going to happen, an occasional interest in certain aspects of the performance. Um, there was one scene, like I say, with the the exchange with the knife over the dinner table that I thought was done with some subtlety and style, otherwise is very very derivative, and I would say it's probably um, eh, maybe a, a two two nano robots out of five, which is fairly low for me. Not a movie I recommend to anybody. Not a movie that I think anybody's going to really get anything from. Yeah, you know that's uh, I'd I'd say you're being you're being pretty uh pretty generous there. I I, <laughs> I think I would probably give it uh, one and a half nanobots, and uh, okay. the 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 half nanobot would be the one at the end that's missing its wing. You know? Fair, fair, yeah, yes. Give it one full nanobot and one one nanobot that's a bit a bit disheveled. Okay, so yeah, so the film that I picked, uh, and the way we're going to do this is, as we move along with this the show, the way we've got it set up right now, is that uh, yeah, this was Chris's uh, week, so he picked Tao. I, I watched Tao, and I chose in response to it my my criterion answer to this film, um, <laughs> and what I chose was uh, yeah, a film from from 1960, a French film called Le Trou or The Hole in English. But this is one of those films that's, for whatever reason, is it's usually named by its French title, hmm. which is Le Trou. Yeah, I'm 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 actually going to take you up on that and call it the Hole because Le Le Trou, Le Trou. Yeah. I I don't have the, I don't have the biology to speak French, unfortunately. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. So the Hole. <laughs> this this film, uh, at first I was a little bit perplexed as to why you picked this one in response to Tao. But I mean, it, it quickly became clear, you know, the minute that he sits down with the guys and finds out that they have a, an escape planned. I should I should go into the story here. So basically, yeah. the whole is the story of this ragtag bunch of prisoners in a, a French prison, uh, who basically it's it's a prison break movie. It's them planning an escape from this jail, 
and uh, we we see most of the story through the eyes of this uh, of this new guy. Uh, is it Ga- Gaspar? How, how would you pronounce that? Uh, Claude. Yeah, uh, Gaspar Claude. Gaspar. Or Claude. One of those. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, uh, we we see the film through through Gaspard's eyes uh, as he. He, he's being moved from his cell to a new cell because it's being uh, renovated or, or some such. And so he ends up with this group of a, a handful of other prisoners. And uh, over the course of a, of a little interval, they, they sort of assess whether or not they can trust him, whether or not they like him enough to share with him this, this prison break that they've been planning. They've, they've been planning this escape. Turns out a bunch of them stand to lose a lot being here in prison. I think the lowest sentence they're seeing is 10 years. Some of them, some of them might be getting the guillotine. Uh, they all have an incentive to get out of this prison. And so over, over a fairly short period, uh, not necessarily an unrealistic period, but in the over the course of the film, we probably spend the first 20 to 25 minutes of yeah. them kind it's of... It's expedited, I think, by necessity. I th- you know, they, they establish that oh, yeah. this, is all, this is all ready mm-hmm. to go. Yeah, yeah, they're they're pretty much ready to move, and so yeah, they need they need to determine quickly if this is a guy. I mean, especially you know they're sharing a cell. He's gonna get wise very soon if they don't clue him in, anyways. So you basically get uh, they they invite him into their circle, and he takes to it immediately. They find out. Um, he he tells them he's he's been framed. Well, not framed. He's been accused of attempted murder by his ex-wife, in a situation that, as he describes it, sounds very much like. Like the 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 court will be tipping in the ex-wife's favor and not his, so it sounds like he doesn't stand much of a chance of getting out of here in under ten to twenty years, and so he they, you know he hears about the prison break and he's just immediately like, all right, let's do this, and it's kind of nice actually. Over the course of the film, as they go through this process, you sort of see him bonding with everybody, and there's even a moment where he tells them he's never felt so alive as working on this prison break with them, and it's this kind of sense of, of fraternity he has with these other prisoners. Uh, and it, it, that's actually one of my favorite things about this movie. This was the first note that I took was, I know that the Prison Break movie probably wasn't a cliche or a trope at the time that this film was made, but for me, having seen more than my fair share of Prison Break films, both good and bad, you kind of get a sense of the archetypes and the stereotypes and, oh, here's so-and-so, he's the muscle, here's so-and-so, he's the brains, you know, and it's kind of... Yeah, kind of the reverse heist film. Exactly. And, you know, you kind of get, you know, the guy who's kind of the, the douchey edgelord who's kind of like, I don't want anything to do with any of this, you know, and you get, you get like, your typical bunch of characters. In this film, I was amazed at the fact that every one of these prisoners had a personality that I found to be very distinct and very real. They felt like very real characters and not a single one of them felt derivative to me, uh, which I was very impressed. I mean, you even had, there's a brief moment where there's a character that they kind of refer to as the ladies man. I think that was geo. Yeah. Joe, Joe, Joe. Yeah. They, they, (laughs) they call Joe, they, they sort of refer to him as the ladies man. And, and again, that, the rest of the film doesn't betray that reveal about him, but at the same time, it's it's just this very small little thread in the tapestry of what his character is, and that's kind of the same for all of them. You get uh, the, uh, oh gosh, help me up, oh, the son of the minister. What was his name? Uh, Monsignor. Monsignor. Or oh, that's right. he also went by the, the reverend. The reverend, that's right. Yeah. Uh, I loved his character because I think, I think he was the closest thing the film had to a comic relief. Yeah. Because he was he was easily well, the uh, most we'll, lighthearted. We'll of talk the about bunch. that. I think I think I think Joe is quite funny too, but we can get to that later. Oh, that's true actually. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um 
But again, yeah, it's like you kind of get um, the sense that there are plenty of places where they could have gone the easy route with these characters. They could have they they, they could have made them very very simple stereotypes from which you could derive a ton of drama. You know, like you could easily. It's it's kind of I, I kind of call it rom com drama where you have these characters who drama arises from characters behaving unrealistically specifically because we need that drama. But uh, amazingly, the entire film goes without a, without a whole ton for the bulk of the film. There's not a ton of interpersonal conflict. They're, they're mostly on the same page as they go along. There's a little bit of tension, especially with, uh, why can't I remember French names, Bo? The guy who was kind of leading the whole thing, the tall one. I'm trying to remember his name. You're talking about Manu. Manu, that's right, Manu. But uh, I, I really liked the fact that, I mean, you had you had Manu, who was not necessarily the mastermind, but he was kind of the Leonardo of their Ninja Turtles, you know? He was kind of the... Yeah, the most aggressive, sort of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and he was the most on edge, the least trusting. Uh, you know, he was... But at the same time, again, it there wasn't this constant vibe of him... I think of I think of the way Thor and Oakenshield is portrayed in The Hobbit, where just every chance he gets, he's just pissing on Bilbo, you know, just to show how much he doesn't like him. But yeah, in this film, it's he he's sorry. You go ahead. You were about to to say something. On no, it. I was just I was just going to bring up that it's. I think that these characters are. Um, I find anyway that the characters are all very likable you don't really have even the 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 guards everybody in this film is likable. there's no antagonist really the antagonist is just sort of the system it's this puzzle that they that they're in and it's the the timing and the intricacy of this puzzle and how are they going to to work through it and it is a film like you've been saying that i'm i'm a sucker for these sort of procedure films there is drama but it's done subtly this interpersonal drama and a lot of the film is spends some time on this sort of procedure of how to get through things you know you get to watch them meticulously go through all the steps of these little things even just the inspection of the the food which i quite liked those scenes actually if you don't mind that's actually the clip i wanted to share oh wonderful uh and i mean this will probably not make for very good podcasting but uh <laughs> i this was the first scene i saw where i was just floored by the level of care they took. I'm going to go ahead and and play this. Uh, for listeners, as you hear this, just imagine... Well, I'm, I, I can narrate it a bit as it goes along, I suppose, to yeah. kind of give some context for it. So the, you're talking about the scene, right, where they receive their packages from the outside world and then a, a guard kind of inspects them to, to see whether or not... Correct. This is they, you know, contain contraband. Yeah, this is the this is the old prison inspection sequence, and this I, I love this for a few reasons. So we'll I'll, I'll kind of narrate for the parts where there's no dialogue. So he's he's rummaging through this box. He's pulling out a, a guard. big assortment of foods. The gu- oh, that's right. The guard is doing this. Sorry, I should specify. The the guard is kind of pulling out a bunch of different foods that he's received. He's cutting a sausage open, or not a sausage, but you know, a, a, a it's all very French. Cured meat. So French. It's all very French. Yeah, so many French foods. What looks like a a dried eel. Yeah. Uh, several cups of of uh, various rice very, cakes and. You get the sense that this has been, you know, this this actor has done this before. I don't know what he was doing it with. Because this food is all, you know, fresh, but this very, you know, procedural, very matter-of-fact. Yeah. It, yeah, it's very pragmatic and very, very, uh... It's almost, my chaleur. When you have a little drink. 
Okay, so this is the part. This is the part that I loved. Is you get this guard who is very methodically rummaging through this stuff, and he has a very, very specific system for it. Cut this open, bend this in half, open this up, uh, and then he he looks up at him and he says, "It smells very good. That could be rice cake." And he says, "Oh, it probably is." The the guard says this to the prisoner, and he he says, "Yeah, yeah, it probably is." And I I thought that this showed a very it, it set the stage so well for me because it showed both both the, the 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 meticulousness of this prison and how careful they are so you, at, yeah. at, already you have an idea of of the challenges they face just seeing how much care they put into checking food and at the same time you get this moment where the guard just looks it up at him and says oh that smells really good what is that is that rice cake you know it's just kind of this like you said there are no heroes and villains in this movie which is something it's inspiring to me in a way as a as an aspiring storyteller because it's this film is not a film with not even antagonists and protagonists necessarily. I mean, there are, but it, it, it's more like this is a prison. The prisoners want to get out. The guards and the warden want to make sure the prisoners stay in prison. Yeah. And from there stems all of the conflict we need. And we don't need any, we, we don't need any mustache twirling. We don't need any yeah. aggressive <laughs> signs. We we don't need the guards to drag prisoners out and hit, the, hit them with with nightsticks, you know. They don't have to make prison life seem terrible because it's implicit that being in prison means you're not free. And that's all you need to know to know that these guys want to get out of here. Yeah. And in a way, I think it's, it's it weirdly, these movies are sometimes inspiring in not just creatively, but uh, in a human way because... It's it's this challenge, right? It's the yeah. I mean, we never really know, aside from the character that we're sort of following through the story, the character of of Gaspar. We don't we don't really know what anyone has done to be in prison. We don't know if these guys are cold blooded killers. We don't know if they're petty thieves. Um, they they're presented. They become quickly very uh, sympathetic and interesting and complete. I feel through. Um, Little moments that we get, you know, there's real no exposition, no backstories, but we do get a sense of who who these people are, and then we just sort of see them, you know, deal with with this problem. Yeah, that's that's something that's something I loved was again, the, none of the drama or the tension or the suspense is generated artificially, and I think a lot of that stems from this prison escape feeling very, very, very real. There's, there's pretty much every step of the way is very raw. I, I mean, uh, to be honest, if, if the film wasn't so concerned with showing the details of this escape, it probably could have been 35 minutes long, you know, yeah. there's, which yeah. that's not a knock on the film either. That's like, it, it was a really intimate window into an actual prison escape. And because of that, all the tension comes from, we don't want to get caught. You know, it's like, that that's plenty. You can get so much out of that just from them doing something that they could easily get caught for. We know it's at stake, and we know they don't want to. And there's so much, you know, uh, ingenuity going on. Again, that's what I was trying to get to. Was is the inspiring mm. point is just seeing this, like the desire for people to be free. Even we don't understand who these, you know, what these people have done to get there, but we understand that they don't want to be there, and we watch them sort of figure out and you know, these surprisingly intricate and involved ways of beating this system, which is, is also surprisingly intricate and involved. 
Oh, one question I had about that. So this was this was one of my notes. H- how are they making... I know they try and time their stuff so that it lines up with other things, but then the racket they make, <laughs> smashing through yeah. the concrete of their floor, yeah. is so... I mean, in a way, it's good because it generates a lot of tension. And, they, you know, they have the guy who's standing guard outside watching for, for passersby. But the whole time, I'm just thinking, like, how... <laughs> I mean, maybe there are workers in this prison doing work that's this strenuous but i'm just thinking like how do they not hear this bomb 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 smashing through yeah the f- yeah and he says at one point it's the noise that's going to save us as the characters are worried about this smashing and breaking but that's one of the things i wanted to talk about is um the the sounds of this film this film has no music mm-hmm. um the only the only sliver of a uh, score we get is right at the end credits and uh, this is sort of lovely piano music right at the end there Mm-hmm. Um, but there is a sort of rhythm and ambiance to it. And I wonder, actually, if we can play my clip now. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So a clip I, I grabbed from the film is this is right after um, Gaspard has come into the cell and he's he's met the others and they've made their decision that they're going to trust him with their their secret, that they're planning this escape and that they're ready to move on it. And they've they've just let him know and he's in sort of his ecstasy, this ecstasy of fraternity. He's pulled out his package of goodies that he's received, and he's now sharing them with everybody. Alors, j'attaque, je t'en prie. So they're just sharing all the food now. Ici, on passe son temps qu'à bouffer. We do nothing around here but eat. I love that moment of the film where you really feel the, I, I think that moment establishes several things. It's one that kept playing in my mind. One, you see, again, that procedure and the sort of realism, which we can talk about in a minute, but, uh, you know, they're sharing the food. And it's all these different things that we've just seen the guard go through and they're tasting it and sitting there, each in their different aspects. And, they, and he says, you know, they're just, it's just this game of waiting until the night till they can do the work that they're that they're fueled up to do, which is trying to escape. And in the meantime, they're just sitting there. He says, we have to do nothing but eat. And then you get to hear just the sounds of this place, all the rumbling. And there are different points during the film, if you listen, that was one thing I was going to bring up. You do hear other like banging sounds going on sometimes, and carts moving around, and there's always chatter. It just seems like a place that there's always noise until one moment at the very end of the film we we get a moment of complete silence but otherwise there's always a sort of ambient sound going on and the other thing is that i think it's astonishing for a film that at least i find i don't know if you found it to be quite suspenseful and thrilling at moments um very sort of edge of your seat at times yet it's a film that can also take you know a good 30 seconds to just listen to the sound of these guys sitting around eating it's funny. I have to say, this reminded me a lot of perhaps the only other old French film that I've seen, which is The 400 Blows. Uh, it was a film that I watched in my very first film class, and we learned something that has stuck with me ever since. There's there's a moment, and this movie reminded me a lot of that, because there's several moments that, just very, 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 very quick summary. 400 Blows is about a kid in France with a tough life. That's basically, yeah. that's basically yeah. the gist. 
And uh, there are several moments in the film where we watch this kid. There's we, we take probably a solid, I want to say like a solid five minutes at least, watching this kid set the dinner table in his house for his for uh, for his parents. And then we also have another moment where this kid is uh, he steals a bottle of milk and he stops. He runs away and then he stops and hunches behind a dumpster and he just drinks the entire bottle of milk, wipes his mouth, looks around, runs off, and uh, that was one that. This was at a point in my life where if something dragged on a bit, my first thought was, boring, why are we, like in this case, I, I would have thought, why are we mm. watching these five guys eat food in a jail cell? Like, what, what's the point? What are we doing here? But my, uh, my, my film teacher said something that I thought was, it, it changed the way that I watch movies, quite literally. It, he said these moments of, he called it intimacy, with the characters where you get to sit and watch them do something that you do that is not particularly interesting. It, 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 instead of looking for a superficial purpose, those moments you should allow yourself to get drawn in, just allow yourself to be there with the characters for these little personal moments. You know, he talked about how like, there's a reason why in James Bond, you never see James going to the bathroom or something like that. You know, there's like, yeah, there's there in a lot, a lot of like the more high octane films that are more consumed. And again, that's one of the reasons why this is such an awesome prison break movie is because yeah. a prison break movie is a perfect movie to skip any sign of, of person of, you know, private intimate moments, but this film is loaded with them. Yeah. Yeah. Including the uncomfortable ones, which it, it only suggests, which I think is interesting for a film that deals so much in realism. And I think you need that realism. Like we've been talking about these intimate moments to really build up the suspense, to make it believable. But there's also a film that for, you know, if you talk about a realistic prison movie, if, if I just say those words, I think everybody's really thinking of, uh, you know, beatings and prison rape and all kinds of gruff, grisly stuff. And you don't get that here, but it doesn't feel at all like they're pulling any punches. Like, I don't get the impression that this is, you know, I mean, this is France in which has always been looser about these things. And this is 1960. So this isn't a film that's like cutting out things because they're too unsavory. This is just the way that this film is presenting the world to us. And again, we don't get the idea that, um, you know, we, we see there's that extraordinary scene where uh, the plumbers come in and they end up stealing some stuff. And then you see um, the, 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 one of the guards arranges it so that the plumbers go back in so that the prisoners are able to get their revenge, which basically consists of, by Manu's orders, uh, Joe getting up and just slapping them silly, um, <laughs> quite quite brutally. Um, and then immediately after that's over, you know, uh, there's the different reactions, you know, the reverend kind of going, oh, that was nice. I enjoyed that. Uh, and... <laughs> Joe just not caring as he does just about everything. And then yeah. um, you see the Roland character, the sort of the escape genius, um, saying, Manu, that, that was childish. You're becoming brutal. And that's all that we get on that. That's just sort of mm -hmm. that note of, you know, which I think is very telling of the psyches of these of these different characters. Uh, and yeah. I, I think we should go in real quickly. I don't know if you... If you looked into this at all, but did you look at all into the to the background of this film? I did. You told me that it had some interesting background, and I thought, yeah. how interesting could it be? And oh boy, 
my word. Uh, so is, is it okay if I drop this bomb since it was it's fresh news to me and then you can elaborate on yeah, it? Yeah, I mean, but the thing is, it's right up front at the beginning of the film. But yeah, go ahead. That's true. See, and, and part of me was thinking, like, maybe this also is fictional. Cause yeah, that's how I felt film, when I first saw it. Yeah, yeah. At the start of the film, this guy walks up to the camera and he says, my name is so-and-so. You, give him a, you get a very Mr. Rogers opening. He's sort of working on a car and the camera just pulls up. <laughs> and then he sort of goes, oh, hello. Oh, hi. You know, and turns around and walks up to the camera and says... I didn't see you there. <laughs> my my friend, you know, Jacques Becker, who's the director, uh, made this story. It's my story. And then, boom, you're just in. Yeah, yeah. See, part, part of me was thinking like, oh, this is an interesting way to kind of give us a flashback to what happened, you know? Yeah. And, uh, but no, that guy at the start, his real name was Renald, right? Or R- Roland. Well, he, that's his, he, he was credited as a Roland, but his, his real name, his actual name is Jean Carody. Oh, okay. And he used, he, it was a sort of a pseudonym to uh, protect his identity. Ah, right, right, but, right. Yeah. Yeah, so that guy... Uh, he was one of a handful of experts. I believe they brought on three experts. Well, not yeah. experts, but people who had been through this. Uh, one of whom went on to play Ronald in the film, who, who is the expert, the guy who was going yeah. through the process of yeah. teaching them the minutia of how to escape from this prison. Which is fantastic. I mean, to get yeah. that detail from these people that were actual, they actually broke out of a prison. And then to have... <laughs> Yeah, this character, uh, well, to have Jean Carody and his, you know, in his one, his one film, giving a terrific performance as himself, some twenty years after his escape. Yeah, that that's mind-boggling to me, and it, or near that. Yeah. Well, and and I love the fact that his character in the film was the pragmatist, just like you said. He yeah. said like that. That was you're getting too brutal. That was unnecessary, you know. And even in that scene where they're all eating lunch together that you just shared, they're all sitting there eating. He's in the corner just having a smoke. Like he's not yeah. even. He's he's the one who is, the most detached. I think he is all about just the plan and getting out. Which yeah. Which. Again, that that's not played off as a, as a character flaw. That's just who he is, and it it comes off very natural and organic. And and I think we have to believe that he's that kind of a guy, because I mean we do get the sense that he's been through some of this. There's that great exchange that uh, I got quite a chuckle from this time when when uh, Joe says, "Yeah, Roland's our prison break expert. He's made three successful attempts," <laughs> and then Roland <laughs> just kind of stares at him. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, you know, we do get the sense he's been around it. But, yeah, he's he's got to be sort of passionless in this way because he's clearly this great mechanical mind. He's come up with all these plots and ideas, and he thinks of so many things. that, And he's one of these, you know, quote-unquote geniuses in a film that we really believe. Like, at no point I'm, – I'm always amazed by his ingenuity, but at no point do I think, oh, come on. Like, nobody could yeah. think of that. Or, you know, he, really? It's all very real, yeah. And yeah. I want to give you another layer to this. So this film is written by a guy, it's Jacques Becker, oh. the director, co-writes with a guy called Jose Giovanni, which is also a pseudonym, but we'll just stick with it. Oh. So Jose Giovanni uh, wrote a novel called The Break, right. um, which is about a prison break. And so this is sort of a melding of the actual prison escape stories plus this novel that was written but Jose Giovanni had also escaped from prisons really? and based a character in his book off of Jean Caradi. And Jean Caradi had been imprisoned a few times, and some of those were he was imprisoned by uh, the Vichy government or the Nazis uh, during the war 
because he was part of the French resistance. And here's a twist for you. Jose Giovanni was imprisoned because he was a collaborator with the Nazis. <laughs> and Really? So there's this extra layer uh, of the, yeah, one of the writers of the film um, had uh, committed crimes sort of in sympathy with the Axis powers. And you have another guy who'd committed crimes in sympathy with the resistance. <laughs> and they come together to give the background and the escape expertise for this movie. So a lot going on. That is incredible. Oh, my word. Yeah. Okay. That, this movie, I, I loved it the moment I saw it, but it just gets better the more I learn about it. That is such a cool detail. <laughs> and it really does. It's interesting the way it affects the film, right? Because, you know, as lots of people have observed... Um, we do get something out of, even though um, I always maintain that all film is fiction, um, even documentaries, you know, we're never getting the full reality. It's all performative. It's all edited. You know, it's a, it's an art form. But yeah. adding that, that whisper of true story always gives a, a different edge to the film. And it's interesting that this film, I think, can be viewed with or without that. I mean, with it, it does add this layer. But I, like you, the first time watching it, didn't really grasp that it was a true story or based on a true story. I just sort of thought, okay, there was an interesting introduction and kind of went along for the ride, really forgetting about that moment as soon as it happened, that that intro. Yeah. And just taking it as a straight fiction uh, prison break. And so, yeah, then to have this layer gives it certainly a lot else to think about as you watch. Yeah, yeah. And I have to say, the, the way the film draws you in... Um, Oh, gosh. Okay, so with Tao, I didn't care about spoiling it so much because it's, you know, who, who could possibly go into that movie uh, not... Who, who could care? But <laughs> with this film, <laughs> with this film, there's something I love about the ending, but I... What do you think? Should we should we do a little spoiler warning and and proceed, or should we leave? Should we just leave yeah, that to I the think, viewer? Yeah, I think we have to, you know, spoil. Here there be spoilers. And warning, we go. spoilers. I'll I'll insert a time code at the end for where you can jump to if you don't want to hear about this ending. But really, you should just if you haven't heard if you haven't seen it yet, stop the podcast, go watch the movie, and then come back. Yeah. Because this is a I don't you can't regret watching this film. Exactly. But yeah, uh, if you haven't and you want to keep going, pause now. I'll give you the time code right now. Hey everybody, Future Chris here. If you're looking to avoid spoilers, the time code you're looking for is 1 hour, 22 minutes, and 40 seconds. Again, that is 1, 22, 40. Bit of advice though, give the movie a watch. Or just check check the movie out. It's pretty it's a pretty good movie. And for those of you still wishing to enter spoiler country with us, uh, I'll turn the time back over to past Chris and regular Bo. Okay, so... Uh, I, I loved the fact that at the beginning of the film, uh, the four inmates who were in the cell already, they're, when he leaves to go get his food inspected, they're sort of talking back and forth. And, you know, Monsignor says, like, I like him. You know, he's, he's, he's a cool guy. Like, I think we could trust him. And then you still have Manu being sort of uneasy and saying, like, I don't, I don't trust guys like him. I don't, I don't think I can. And, and then when he comes back, you know, they sort of they ask how much he stands to risk. And it's very they're very thorough in establishing. Can we trust this guy? How much does he stand to lose? What are his odds of getting off? You know, and then at the very towards the very end, he gets a call from the, the warden who brings him into his office and tells him, lo and behold, your ex-wife has agreed to drop the charges against you. We're going to let you out any time now. 
and he just gets this 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 dead expression on his face and then the warden asks what's wrong do you want to tell me something and then the camera cuts away which i was so happy about because deep down i wanted to trust that he wouldn't give him up you know i wanted to trust that he would he would hold yeah. to that fraternity he's built over the last few days with these guys but you know deep down you know again nobody in this film is an is a strong archetype they're they're just people and you just think, how would your average person react if they found out that they were, they went from facing twenty possible years to suddenly facing life as a as a convict who was on the run, to getting the life that you had back? You know, it's like who wouldn't take that? And so, uh, we cut back, and then there's this tension in the air when he returns to his cell, and especially Manu is is suspicious. Yeah, you know, and he's sort of the most I think intuitive of all the characters, and he's he's been the one that was sort of you know, most reluctant to adopt mm-hmm. uh, Jaspar to begin with. Exactly. And uh, Jaspar basically convinces them, you know, it's okay. Let's just keep going with it. Like, I, you know, I, what, what, what do you think? I, I, would, I would give you up like that? Come on, you know. And so they continue with the plan. And by far my f- – gosh. I mean, I, I feel wrong to say it's my favorite moment of the film because I loved so much of it. But probably my actual favorite moment of the film is they're just about to do their escape – and was it Monsignor at the door, the reverend, uh, who was checking? Yeah, I think it's him that's looking through their little periscope, their awesome little periscope toothbrush <laughs> thing. <laughs> yeah, this awesome periscope where they just have like a little reflective surface they hold out through the hole in the door yeah. to, to check the hallways. He holds it out there. And I think when you said there's one moment of pure silence, I think, yeah. if I'm unless I'm wrong, this is the moment you're talking about. Um, it goes dead silent to the point that if you have bought into the movie at this point, you could hear your own heartbeat probably. Yep. This moment of pure silence where Monsignor, he sticks the reflective surface out and looks out, and my gosh, in my room where I was watching it, you could hear a pin drop. What does he see? He sees a hallway packed to the brim with guards. Yeah, that reveal is one of the great reveals, I think, because, yeah, the the way the little periscope works, right, is they can look one way at a time. And so they look one way and it's a scene we've seen many times of them looking out and there's just a hallway and there's like maybe a guard milling around or something. And then, yeah, mm-hmm. they just flip that. And all of a sudden, you know, not just one guard coming, but like 20 guards just watching, An clearly just looking at that little periscope thing. Yeah. Yeah. The stillness of it. They're just sitting there waiting. Like they, they, there's not this bum rush. It's just like, they're yeah. just sitting there watching and it's the most chilling. I'm getting goosebumps just talking about it. Like the, and then there's that moment, that brief flash, and then suddenly it's just, boom, this chaos erupts. Yeah. The minute they realize what's happening, Manu goes for Jaspar, starts strangling him. The guards have to pull him away. It's just this insane outbreak. And then, you know, yeah. they get everybody, they disrobe them, put them against the wall. And it, it, the funny thing is I was there with them. The movie did a perfect job over the course of those two hours drawing me in and believing in their attempt. So as they're getting caught, even as they're getting stripped down, I'm thinking like, well, gosh, how are they, how are they going to get out of this one? You know, like I'm thinking the plan still has to go down though. Right. Like the plan, and it slowly dawns on me. Oh, oh, they're not getting out. Are they? This is over. Oh, darn. (laughs) Which is an extraordinary thing to do in a film where you've been introduced with this character who comes out and says, this is my escape story. And he doesn't get away. Yeah. (laughs) 
That ah uh, gosh, well, that is that is one of the most clever subversions I've ever seen in a film. Yeah. And, uh, and unless I'm mistaken, it was my impression that Jaspar went back to his old cell with the idea that his freedom wasn't as approximate as he thought it was when he gave up his friends. Right. Like I it, mean, there's kind of there a few this... readings. I think you can get there at the end because you get this idea that you know uh, there's that great moment where it goes. It goes silent, and this, this is the one I was talking about. This is the unre- This is the stylized silence where they've literally mm. cut the audio, and ah. you see, um, they've got the prisoners are all restrained, with the exception of uh, uh, Jasper, who's not been touched, and he's just able to walk out now in his shame as the prisoners stare at him, and Roland looks at him and says, uh, "He says." Poor Jasper, and then yeah. they they take him off to this uh, to this other cell, and he and he just enters a cell alone, and they close him in there. And I think I read this as because one of the interesting things of the film, which is very subtle, that plays throughout. You know, as you say, it's it's an escape film, and you're watching the procedure. It's the reverse heist. It's the who's going to do what? How are they going to get through this? But there's this this undertone of fraternity this is a movie about fraternity because there's really a bond that they keep showing between these these four you know and even at the end when they know that um joe has said uh, joe has said that he's going to stay behind and they all go up to give him their goodbyes and they all come up and they do the you know the very french they kiss him on both cheeks uh with the exception of uh jaspar who just goes up and or or claude yeah who, who just goes up and yeah, it gives him a handshake. You know, he's he's on the outside, and I think there's a feeling established throughout that he's on the outside um, in more ways than just being the last guy to come in. Um, mm-hmm. I think there's a reading of this film as well that's kind of about class uh, class structure because we find out through this whole film. You know, we don't know what these other guys are in for, but it's very clear that this you know ragtag band of four. Um, these are guys that have lived hard lives. These are, you know, they've been through the school of hard knocks. And it's interesting because you get in, in this prison world anyway, the prison world that we're given in this film, um, it's sort of a reverse class structure where those who have had a soft life are kind of at the bottom. And those who have had the hard life are able to take, you know, you never really get the point. You understand that they want to get out and you sympathize with that, but you'd never really get the point that this jail is all that bad, you know? It doesn't seem like, yeah. um, you know, this is a prison that if I had to go to prison, like maybe I'd go to this prison <laughs> because, I mean, there's <laughs> it's certainly confining and monotonous. But, you know, nobody's uh, presented as like really uh, in any sort of state of harrowing suffering or anything like that. They're, they're able to kind of roll with it. And you get the idea that th- these guys are all sort of cool, even Manu, who's the most hot headed. They're all very level, and they just sort of take it as it comes. Um, mm-hmm. And even though they do, like us, get caught up in the suspense of, are we going to make it? You don't get the sense that these are um, guys who are going to have, you know, real emotional breakdowns, you know, and sob in the corner. And maybe they did, you know, but maybe it was the first time they were in prison when they were 12 years old or something. Yeah. Whereas the, whereas the Claude character, it's very well established that he is um, from the upper class, 
There's a lot of talk about his wealth and his money, and he's almost kind of wants to hide it because he wants to get more, you know, street cred. And you see, like, you know, most of the guys are sleeping in their ragtag prisons. I mean, their raggedy prison clothes or their, um, or, you know, in some state of semi-nudity. And he sleeps in, like, these full, like, looks like they're, like, silk pajamas that he wears. And Mm -hmm. um, so we get this idea that he's on the outs. And I think one of the things tie back my whole ramble to the to what you were saying is at the end there when he goes off and he and and Roland is just pitying him you get the idea that ah well maybe you're going to get out sooner you know the charges have been dropped and you're going to find a way out and you've collaborated and they're going to throw you a bone but what what have you lost because these guys are are staying here but there's this value to the brotherhood that they have this fraternal experience and you get the idea that, well, you have to live with betraying that fraternal experience, you know, whereas yeah. these guys are, you know, these hardened, th- these guys who probably committed the crimes when maybe Jaspar didn't commit his. But these guys who probably committed the crimes, they're the ones who are going to sleep with a clean conscience tonight. That is a really good way to sum it up. I feel like that's a good closing line for it, really. I mean, they're in the end, it's... I, I find myself sympathizing a lot more with the four than I do with Jess with, yeah. with Jess Barr by a significant margin. Doesn't matter where they came from. Doesn't matter what they did. All that matters is the brotherhood that they share in this moment. Yeah. Um, again, if somehow you've made it to this point and you haven't seen this film, I go out and see this film. Uh, if you're a person who worries about subtitles, you don't really need to worry about. It. There's not a lot of dialogue in the film. Um, uh, it's really done up uh, in a very straightforward and cinematic way uh, with a lot of sophistication and subtlety. Um, It's all parts thrilling, intimate, and just kind of this window into futility. The last thing that I'll say anyway is I think this whole film is kind of almost summed up in a way with its opening scene. I'm I'm talking not about the little introduction that Jean Caradi gives, but right after that, you see this prison. There's a lineup of prisoners, and this prisoner that we only know for a, a moment, just some side character, goes in to present himself in front of the warden of the prison, and the and the warden is told that this character is on a hunger strike. He says, "Well, why are you on a hunger mm-hmm. strike?" And he says, "Because I want the judge to know that I'm innocent. I want him to know that I'm not eating." And they say, "Well, then nobody's going to care." And he's doesn't. And he says, "No, they're going to know. They have to know. I'm not eating, and I'm not eating because I'm innocent." And they say, "Well, all right, that's your choice." And it's sort of just put out there as this is a futile thing you're doing. Um, mm-hmm. But he doesn't care. He's got to do it anyway. Even though it's a futile gesture, that's what he's going to do. And I think in the end, that's what this whole film turns out to be is, you know, it's all just an escape that doesn't work. But you know yeah. that they had to do it and you know they're going to do it again. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I love that. Yeah, that, that's it. It seems there's there's no there's no, nothing spells it out at the end, but just based on the experience you've shared with these four prisoners, you know that they're gonna try again. And I, like like you said about the futility, I think for me, if I had to sum up what this movie meant to me, it's 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 a it's a person not allowing their spirit to be snuffed out even in the face of futility. Yeah, and I think it's it's an amazing film for that reason. Yeah, I think if so. 
Oh, I was just going to say, if I if I were to give this film a rating... Yeah, there we go. What's our rating metric? Well, there was a lot of smashing through stuff yeah. in this film. Lots yeah. and lots of banging on walls. I, I I would say I would rate this film in chunks of smashed concrete. Okay, smash uh, bits of concrete. Rubble. Rubble, we'll say. Yeah. I, I give it I give it five out of five rubbles. <laughs> I give I give it one clean hole through a wall. Uh, <laughs> yeah. The, this the, the, I honestly this was a I I, yeah. I can't think of a single thing I would change about this film. I thought it was perfect in every way. Sometimes yeah. I'm a bit too trigger happy with my five out of fives, but I feel confident giving it to this one. Yeah, I'm I'm reluctant to give five out of fives usually, but this is one for me. This film it has remarkable control, and it's like you said, just it's one of the few movies that reviewing it. I can think of no moment that I'm like, ooh, well, that's a little. It it all just works from beginning to end, mm-hmm. and I've been, you know, I'm a person who believes that again that all film is fiction, and I'm usually reluctant to dive into to films that go for. Um, realism, as I, I, I tend more toward the stylistic, and I think it has ways of getting at truth and emotion quicker than than so-called realism. But this is a film that that uses its um, realism, so to speak, in moments to really build up to this uh, to the to the thrills and the intimacy. And I don't think there's any other way for it to get there. So. Its attempt at its what we'll call realism, I think, builds up perfectly to the what everything the film is trying to say. And so, for me as well, this is five out of five uh, pieces of rubble <laughs> for me. Very good. Well, Bo, thank you for recommending it. I'm. You, you could have gone dirty like I did with Tao. You could have given me. <laughs> you, you could have. You could have given me something out of spite. I'm glad that you rewarded my chicanery with. With something that was actually very, very good. So, all right. Yeah, uh, I think th- those are our two films summed up and assessed. Bo, uh, who would you say wins this round, streaming or Criterion? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, certain certainly not a fair fight, but yeah, I, th- I think we're both you know we're both agreeing that the rubble trumps the the nanobots this time, and this is a <laughs> a win for for traditional cinema. Um, and what what a film to be able to see in in the cinema. If all this virus stuff blows over in time, this is one that I'm trying to show for this movie club down here in May. And I'm really anxious to have that theatrical experience. I don't think it's going to happen, <laughs> but someday. Uh, Bo, uh, I, I meant to ask, do you have a film picked out for our next episode for me to, to sample? Yeah. So ne- the way we're going to do this now is... Um, I'll give you my pick, and then you'll come. You will come up with a response after watching it. It's the formula we're going to try. Yeah. So, uh, my pick is going to be, of course, another Criterion film. Uh, this film, ironically, can be uh, streamed as well on the Criterion Channel, and it is a movie called The Browning Version. The Browning Version. It is from nineteen. 19- Oh, I wanna, it's from the 50s. I want to say 1953. I might be wrong on that. Uh, 57. It's right, right there in the 50s. It's a British film. And um, it's uh, a, a film that also deals with uh, subtlety in a way. And that's all I'm really going to say about it. But uh, 
uh, okay. for those who, who want to check it out. It's the Browning version, and it's the 50s version, because there was a remake with Albert Finney uh, years later. But this is the, this is the original <laughs> version based on a play. All right. Well, I'll just say right now, there's uh, I'm going to be trying my darndest over the next uh, little while to not make any jokes about the title, <laughs> the, uh, the Browning version. Here we go. I'll try to keep that to myself. Uh, <clears throat> I'm sure uh, our listeners at home are thinking the same thing, and we're all, we're all grown-ups here. I, I don't know that they are, Chris. Well, I don't know just, that they are. It's just the Browning version. I, 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 I don't know a single hot-blooded adult who's not thinking the same thing I am right now. Oh, dear. The, Brown, the Browning version. I'm not going to say it, but I think we all know. I think we all know what's really going on here. All right, well, thanks for stopping in with us, you guys. This is our first episode, hopefully the first of many. We're excited to, to talk film and to, to get some community involvement. Maybe you guys can can comment and leave reviews and whatnot, however this is going to work. But Yeah, all our mini listeners, be sure to give us some feedback. Let us know uh, movies that you think we ought to be talking about, streaming originals or Criterion films. Yep, we are always happy to hear recommendations. All right, well, you guys have a good one. Take care till the next episode. So long. <laughs>